Hello and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast with me, Dr Kat Arney. In this episode from our series exploring 100 ideas in genetics, we're telling the often overlooked stories of four women who helped to shape the science of life. Every other episode of Genetics Unzipped, we're celebrating the Genetic Society's centenary year by exploring some of the top 100 ideas in genetics. This time, it's stories of four women who've often been overlooked in the history of 20th century genetics. That's Esther Lederberg, Harriet Creighton, Tsuneko Okazaki and Martha Chase. New York, 1922. A time of speakeasies, prohibition and squeezed pocketbooks. It's the week after Hanukkah in the Bronx, and Pauline and David Zimmer have just welcomed baby Esther into the world. Money's tight, but young Esther is excelling at school and heads to Hunter College, part of the public New York City University. But instead of studying languages or literature, as her teachers hoped, she switches to biochemistry. Not a suitable subject for a young Jewish girl, and certainly nothing one could make a career from. Science? Schmeins. An academic superstar, Esther graduated cum laude at the age of just 20 and went to work as a research assistant with Alexander Hollander at what later became Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory in New York, where she published her first paper on the genetics of the red bread mould, Neurospora. A couple of years later, in 1942, she won a fellowship to Stanford University in California, working with George Beadle, remember that name, and embarked on her research career. Coming from a poor family who weren't able to provide financial assistance, Esther supplemented her meagre income by working as a teaching assistant and managed to blag free accommodation by washing her landlady's clothes and cleaning the house. She even apparently occasionally resorted to eating the frog's legs left over from dissection classes. 1946 was a big year for Esther Zimmer. Not only did she get her master's degree from Stanford, she also married Joshua Lederberg. And that's when things started to go downhill. At this point, Lederberg, three years her junior, had already secured an assistant professorship at the University of Wisconsin, even though he hadn't actually finished his doctorate. So his new wife quit California to join him there and work on her own PhD, focusing on the genetics of bacteria. It's from this work that she made her most important discovery, lambdaphage, an example of a new type of virus called a bacteriophage, which hides inside the DNA of bacteria, multiplying and bursting out of the bugs in response to a trigger like ultraviolet light. Esther delved into the world of lambda alongside Joshua and the rest of his team, investigating how genetic material was transferred between bacteria finding a key factor required for bacteria to have sex, the F or fertility factor, and much, much more. Along the way, she developed an important technique known as replica plating, still used in microbiology labs all over the world today, to make a perfect copy of all the bacterial colonies growing on a plate of nutrient jelly. Esther realised that if she pressed a pad covered in velvet cloth onto the plate of bacteria, then pressed it onto a clean plate, the fibres of the fabric would act as tiny needles, picking up just enough bacteria to start an identical colony. 
It's a simple idea, but nobody had thought of it before, and it revolutionised the field. As a delightfully feminine detail, she first tested the idea using the powder puff from her makeup compact. And then she spent a lot of time finding just the right brand of fabric, working out how to wash and prepare it for the best results, even down to which detergent to use. 1958 was the next really big year for the Lederbergs. Joshua won a half share of the Nobel Prize for his work investigating how genetic material was transferred between bacteria and many aspects of how genes are switched on and off. But who got the other half? Well, it certainly wasn't his wife, whose work with lambdaphage and bacteria had been so crucial for his success. No, it went to Edward Tatum and George Beadle, Esther's original supervisor at Stanford. She wasn't even mentioned in the prize citation. The Lederbergs headed back to Stanford, where Joshua had been invited to establish and chair a new department of genetics. Despite being roughly the same age and his intellectual equal, the contrast between their careers couldn't be more striking. Joshua racks up position after position, professorships, department heads, election to the National Academy of Sciences. Yet while her husband's academic star was ascendant, helped by her work, Esther struggled to get a job at Stanford, even going with two other women to the dean to demand that he appoint at least one woman onto the faculty. She eventually landed a position, for which she was overqualified, and was only offered the job because it was unpaid. It may not come as a surprise to learn that the Lederberg's marriage ended in 1966, and Esther promptly set up a group for divorced women at Stanford, which I'll bet was a blast. <laughs> Left to her own devices, Esther took over Stanford's Plasmid Reference Centre, a vital collection of tiny circles of DNA that can be put into bacteria for all sorts of purposes. She even kept on volunteering there after her retirement in 1985, the year she was finally recognised by Stanford with the honour of Professor Emerita. Science wasn't her only passion, and Esther was a big fan of medieval, renaissance and baroque music, establishing the Mid-Peninsula Recorder Orchestra in Menlo Park, which is still puffing away today. It's also how she met her second husband, Matthew Simon, who she married in 1993, when she was 70. Esther died in 2006 at the age of 83. Frustratingly, her obituary in the New York Times manages to mention her ex-husband at least four times, including the fact that he'd been president of Rockefeller University and had just been awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom by George Bush. Even in death, she was overshadowed by the man she had divorced 40 years earlier. L'chaim, Esther. Let's reclaim your story. The 1920s was a tough time to be a female scientist. Most women working in science at the time were either laboratory assistants or teachers and lecturers, rather than being allowed to pursue their own line of research or, heaven forbid, run a laboratory. Yet there was one field that seems to have been slightly more accepting than others. Botany, or the study of plants. We'll talk about another pioneering plant geneticist, Edith Rebecca Saunders, who was also the co-founder of the Genetic Society, in more detail in a future episode. 
But for now, imagine yourself at Cornell College of Agriculture in Ithaca, upstate New York. Nestled on a bend in the river, just south of the great glacial Cayuga Lake and surrounded by acres of gardens and plantations. It was a perfect spot for any budding lady botanist, and Barbara McClintock was no exception. Many people, although not nearly enough, might know about her work on maize corn and the discovery of so-called jumping genes or transposons, which can hop around in the genome as well as her many other important findings about the nature of chromosomes and genes and how they behave inside cells. But it wasn't until 1983, when she was in her 80s, that McClintock was finally awarded a Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine, the first woman to win that prize as a solo scientist. Yay! Although McClintock did pick up prizes and recognition for her work during her career, It wasn't always easy, and she struggled to get tenure and funding for her research. In the end, she went to Cold Spring Harbour Laboratory in New York as a visiting fellow in 1941, and just never really left. This was partly because of her sex, partly because her ideas about genetics and her fierce intelligence pitted her against the established dogma of the time, and partly because, in the words of former Cold Spring Harbour director John Cairns, She was an immensely difficult person who specialised in being difficult. But it's not the story of Barbara McClintock I want to tell, but that of Harriet Creighton, her first graduate student. It was summer 1929 when Creighton first arrived in the botany department at Cornell. She was a fresh-faced 20-year-old who had just graduated from Wellesley College, a prestigious women-only institution in Massachusetts, where she'd been taught by Margaret Ferguson, herself a graduate of Cornell, who claimed to have trained more botanists and botanists' wives than anyone else. Creighton had come to work as a graduate student and teaching assistant with one Dr Petrie, who specialised in paleobotany. That's fossilised plants to you and me. As luck would have it, on her very first day, Harriet bumped into McClintock, who was then a graduate student working in the lab of Lester Sharp, an expert in cytogenetics, the study of chromosomes, those long strings of DNA inside living cells. McClintock persuaded Creighton that it would be much more interesting to study living plants than dead ones, and by the end of the day, her whole timetable had been rearranged according to McClintock's advice. Most importantly, she would switch over to working with Sharp and should switch from being a master's student to registering for a PhD. And even more importantly, McClintock would get to be her immediate supervisor. This was a very cunning move on Barbara's part. As someone who had only just received her PhD, she wasn't really supposed to be supervising any students. But the pair clicked immediately, becoming firm friends as well as colleagues. McClintock set Creighton to work studying chromosomes in maize seeds, the two of them bunkering down in a small shared office and heading off to play tennis at the dot of five o'clock whenever the lakeshore weather permitted. Creighton's project was to investigate something known as crossing over or recombination. Many geneticists at the time were perplexed by the observation that particular versions of genes, known as alleles, sometimes appeared to switch between chromosomes. 
This happened during meiosis, the special type of cell division that happens when sex cells are made. That's egg and sperm in animals, or pollen and ovules in plants. Together, Creighton and McClintock showed that this was due to physical crisscrossing of chromosomes, which leads to bits of DNA being swapped around. Over in Berlin, fruit fly geneticist Kurt Stern had made a similar discovery, but Barbara and Harriet beat him to publication by a matter of weeks, with their paper coming out in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences in August 1931, while Stern was on holiday. Oh no. The eminent fruit fly geneticist Thomas Hunt Morgan actually found out about Creighton and McClintock's results when he went to Cornell to give a lecture, and he urged them to publish with haste. He later confessed that he had known about Stern's competing data at the time, but nobly decided that maybe it was time that the women's laborious experiments with slow-growing corn deserved the limelight, ahead of Stern's fast-breeding fruit flies that were getting all the genetics glory. The high point of Creighton's research career came in 1932, when she and McClintock attended the 6th Annual Congress of Genetics, which was being held in Ithaca that year. McClintock gave a lecture about their work, and the two of them hosted a small exhibit explaining their discovery about crossing over. For Barbara, this was just the beginning of a career in science – But for Harriet, it was pretty much the end. Having observed how hard it was for McClintock and other women to secure a university position and get funding for their research, she quit science in favour of a more financially stable teaching role at a women's college in Connecticut, eventually returning to Wellesley as a lecturer in 1940. She served in the US Women's Naval Reserves, also known as The Waves, during the Second World War, and then did stints teaching in Australia and Peru before finally settling back down at Wellesley until her retirement in 1974. In her wonderful biography of McClintock, Evelyn Fox Keller describes Creighton as a robust and easy-mannered woman, relatively tall, with a strong, handsome face and a deep voice made throaty by years of heavy smoking. It's interesting to note that Creighton never married, although I can find no hints about her sexuality. But given that marriage for scientifically-minded women usually meant trading independence and intellectual freedom for domesticity, it's easy to see why she might not have been that keen on it. This is Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Genetics Unzip and online at geneticsunzipped.com. Please do take a minute to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from, and it would be great if you could rate and review the show and tell all your friends. I first learned about Okazaki fragments in my undergraduate biochemistry class when we learned how the DNA in every cell is copied so it can divide. DNA is a double helix, a twisted ladder. Each of the two side struts runs in an opposite direction, up and down, or 5' to 3' and 3' to 5', as biologists say, according to the directional stacking of the DNA letters, or bases, that make up the molecule. 
If it helps, imagine two long chains of stacked pint glasses laid side by side. One stack all facing in one direction and the other running the opposite way. When DNA is copied, these two strands are pulled apart and complementary strands synthesised to match. For presumably boring reasons to do with evolution of protein structures, DNA polymerase, the enzyme that copies DNA, can only run in one direction. So the two sides of the ladder have to be copied in different ways. For one side, this is no problem. The polymerase can just run along and make new DNA in an unbroken chain. But the other side has to do some molecular gymnastics, twisting around in a loop so it can be fed into the polymerase machinery from the right direction, then popping out, twisting again and feeding in a new stretch a little bit further along. This creates short stretches of newly copied DNA, Okazaki fragments, with gaps in between, which have to be patched up in order to create a perfect new helix. And if all of this sounds completely baffling, then check out the link to a handy animation in the show notes. So who was Okazaki? I always assumed that he was another one of those guys from the classic era of molecular biology in the 1960s. Well, I was not only wrong, but I was also suffering from internalised patriarchy. Because it turns out there isn't just one Okazaki. There's two. Tsuneko and her husband, Reiji. Born Tsuneko Hara in 1933 in Nagoya, Japan, she was one of the first generation of Japanese women to take advantage of the country's new post-war constitution, which allowed women to attend university alongside men. So Tsuneko went to the local university in Nagoya to study biology, graduating with a PhD and a husband-to-be in 1956. The Okazakis got married later that year and decided to set up a lab as well as a home together, still at Nagoya University. It was a good move on Tsuneko's part. At the time, it was very difficult for women to find jobs in science, apart from teaching, or even to be recognised as researchers in their own right. But as long as Reiji had a position, she did too. Money was tight in post-war Japan, The roof of their lab leaked and they often had to buy supplies out of their own pocket. Besides research, their main hobby was heading out to the local noodle shop to watch sumo wrestling on TV as they had no set of their own. The Okazakis decided to focus their collective scientific power on unravelling the mystery of DNA copying or replication, investigating the intricate details of the process in frog and sea urchin eggs, moving between the US and Japan over the years. Their key discovery came in the late 1960s. At the time, it was known that DNA polymerase could copy DNA and that it only went one way up the double helix, copying that so-called leading strand. But nobody could figure out how the opposite strand, known as the lagging strand, got copied. After carrying out painstaking experiments with bacteria, the Okazakis realised that as well as making long, unbroken leading strands, DNA polymerase was also churning out much shorter pieces, the eponymous fragments. Of course, the Japanese couple were far too polite to name their discovery after themselves. 
The name Okazaki Pieces was bestowed by American biochemist Roland Hotchkiss at a scientific conference in 1968, the same year they published their findings. Sadly, Reiji died of leukaemia in 1975, aged just 44. He had been born in Hiroshima and was heavily exposed to radiation from the blast of the atomic bomb that was detonated over the town by the United States at the end of the Second World War. Tsuneko kept on going, running the lab by herself and making further important discoveries about DNA replication. While many of the men working in the field received Nobel Prizes for their work in molecular biology through that golden era of the 60s and 70s, and many said that Reiji would have been a worthy laureate had he lived, somehow Tsuneko, on her own, was never worthy of the nod. Yet she was an equal partner in their research, and after Reiji's death, it was Suneko who repeated the complex biochemical experiments time after time to prove that their fragments were real, and this was how DNA replication worked. Perhaps part of the problem was that Reiji was able to dedicate himself to his work in a manner that Suneko herself described as typical old-fashioned Japanese male. He wouldn't even boil a kettle and would just drink water when alone. Maybe it's this attitude, which was highly pervasive in Japanese society at the time, that contributed to his wife being seen as just playing a supporting part, rather than an equal role. It was always Reiji who was invited to speak at conferences, and when he was awarded the prestigious Asahi Prize, Tsuneko was invited to the award ceremony, but as his spouse, not as his co-researcher. Tsuneko also had to take on the responsibility of raising their two children, as well as the scientific housework involved in running the lab. Struggling with finding childcare in 1970s Japan, she devoted a lot of her energy to campaigning for better support for working mothers. Something that another woman, who did manage to win a Nobel, fruit fly biologist Janine Nusslein Volhard, has addressed by setting up a foundation in her native Germany to support women scientists with children. Still alive today, Tsuneko Okazaki is now seen as a highly respected molecular biologist and one of Japan's leading scientific minds. She prefers to focus on her work rather than on the male-centred scientific culture that meant that she was all too often seen as just the wife. She says, That sort of thing happened a lot, but it's trivial. What's important in research is how you find a good problem to tackle and solve it. Do you hear that? That's the sound of a man winning a Nobel Prize. Or rather, it's the sound of a woman doing the work that would lead to a man winning the Nobel Prize. In 1950, Martha Chase arrived at the Cold Spring Harbour Laboratory on Long Island, New York, fresh from finishing her degree at Worcester College in Ohio. She'd come to work as a research assistant with Alfred Hershey, who was investigating how bacteriophage viruses replicate themselves inside cells. In today's era of genes, genomes and DNA, it seems bizarre to imagine a world where people weren't sure whether it was DNA or protein molecules that carried genetic information inside cells. 
But that's where things stood in the early 1940s. In the mishmash of molecules inside a cell, it was very hard to separate out exactly which substance was doing which task. In 1944, Oswald Avery, Colin MacLeod and McLean McCarty carried out experiments testing bacterial extracts that had been treated to remove each of the various types of molecules in cells and seeing whether they were still capable of turning harmless bacteria into killer strains. Getting rid of RNA, proteins, sugars and fats made no difference. It was only when they destroyed the DNA that they destroyed the genetic information. This should have been big news, conclusive proof that it was DNA rather than protein that genes were made of. But Avery and his colleagues were slightly ahead of the curve and there was still plenty of scepticism around the idea of genetic material being solely made of DNA rather than protein or a combination of the two. This wasn't helped by Avery's dislike of going to scientific meetings to present his work and push forward his ideas. In search of an answer, Hershey and Chase sat down to design an experiment that was both simple and elegant. First, they used different radioactive tags to label either the DNA or the protein coat of a bacteriophage, a type of virus that infects bacteria by injecting its genetic material so it can make more copies of itself inside the host cells. Next, they mixed their labelled viruses together with their bacterial hosts and let them get to work. And then, Martha got a kitchen blender and chucked the whole lot in. The idea behind blending this bug smoothie was to shake the viruses off the bacteria once they had injected their genetic payload. The final step was to look for which of the radioactively tagged viral molecules, either DNA or protein, had ended up inside bacterial cells. Can you turn that off? <sighs> Thank you. Hershey and Chase discovered that it was the DNA that had ended up on the inside and the protein on the outside, strongly suggesting that it was indeed DNA that was transmitting the infectious viral genes. Geneticist Matthew Cobb, whose book Life's Greatest Secret looks back over the race to crack the genetic code through the 40s and 50s, argues that the Hershey and Chase experiments may not actually have been the definitive proof of the role of DNA that many people believe them to be. Their blender method still left plenty of contaminating protein in the bacteria alongside the viral DNA. And Hershey himself wasn't entirely convinced that he had proved that DNA was the stuff of genes. Even when the structure of DNA was figured out, presenting an obvious mechanism for the copying and reading of genes, the role of DNA in transmitting genetic information was still seen as a working hypothesis and it was only conclusively proved more than a decade later. Still, Hershey won his Nobel Prize in 1969 along with fellow bacteriophage researchers Max Delbruck and Salvador Luria for his insights into the nature of viruses. A fellow phage fan, Frank Stahl, referred to the three men as making up the holy trinity of the phage church, with Delbruck as pope, Luria as priest and Hershey as patron saint. Martha Chase, needless to say, was not part of this canon. She left Cold Spring Harbour in 1953, going first to Oak Ridge National Laboratory in Tennessee and later to the University of Rochester. 
During the 1950s, she was briefly married to Dick Epstein, another phage scientist, but things didn't work out. Martha became deeply unhappy and was drinking heavily. By 1964, she managed to complete her PhD at the University of Southern California before heading back to Ohio, where she stayed for the rest of her life. Although Chase did much of the lab work and helped to plan the experiments that underpinned Hershey's Nobel, some people argue that, as a technician, it was fair for her to be left out. Hershey was the one driving the direction of the research, and she was more on the delivery end of things. Her obituary in the New York Times, published upon her death in 2003, is headlined, Martha Chase, 75, a researcher who aided in DNA experiment, which isn't bad, I guess. But she still fell victim to the sexist assumptions of the time. One of her male colleagues at Cold Spring Harbour recalls telling her, Martha, it's a beautiful experiment. I'd like to congratulate it. I thought you were just a pretty girl. Now I know you're a good scientist. More fundamentally, Martha Chase's story highlights the problem with using Nobel Prizes as the pinnacle of scientific achievement. Many people in a lab might contribute to a discovery, whether as lab assistants like Chase or equal co-workers like Esther Lederberg or Tsuneko Okazaki. But a maximum of three living people can win a Nobel in any year. So who do you choose? This is a problem that's only going to get worse in an era of collaborative team science. Although more women are working at the most senior levels and getting international recognition for their work, there is still a massive imbalance. As of 2018, 853 men have won Nobels across all categories and only 51 women. There are just 19 female laureates across all the sciences – one of those being Marie Curie, who's got two, and that's not even considering other types of diversity and discrimination. The history of science tends to be mostly told as the stories of great white men with supportive wives. But the times are changing, and I'm excited to see what breakthroughs and discoveries will come in a future where scientific talent is recognised and supported wherever it may be found. run out of time for this episode, but there are many, many more stories to be told about the women who helped to shape the science of genetics. We'll cover some more in future episodes, I'm sure, and please do tweet me with your suggestions, at Genetics Unzip. And if you're interested in women and gender in the history of science and culture more generally, do check out the aptly named Lady Science podcast. There's a link in the show notes. more information about this podcast including show notes transcripts links references music credits and all of that head over to geneticsunzipped.com you can find us on twitter at geneticsunzip or email me podcast at geneticsunzipped.com with any questions or feedback please do take a minute to make sure you're subscribed to this podcast on apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcast from and it would be really really great if you could rate and review us and more importantly do spread the word so more people can discover this show. Genetics Unzipped is written and presented by me, Kat Arney, and produced by First Create the Media for the Genetics Society, one of the oldest learned societies in the world dedicated to supporting and promoting the research, teaching and application of genetics. 
You can find out more and apply to join online at genetics.org.uk. Our theme music was composed by Dan Pollard. Our artwork is by James Mayle. Production is by Hannah Barrell. Thanks for listening, and until next time, goodbye.